Welcome to another combined meetup of the New Economy Network of Australia's Canberra Regional Hub, or Nina Can, and Co-ops Commons and Communities Canberra, or CoCanberra. Nina is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Nina was conceived in 2016 at a conference on building the new economy. After many hours of planning and consultation, two national conferences and many regional meetings, Nina became incorporated as a cooperative in early 2019. There are three dimensions to Nina's work. We are building networks, connections and shared initiatives within specific geographic areas such as towns, cities, regions and states. The Canberra Regional Hub is an example of this. Across different sectors within the new economy, including sustainable food, energy, transport, housing, indigenous economics, ecological economics and many, many more. We prioritise specific strategic goals every year. Nina is made up of a growing number of connected, semi-autonomous hubs that bring people together to focus on different places or issues in the new economy. Nina also has a central coordinating hub that provides support to our hubs across Australia and secretariat support to our elected groups, the Board of Directors, the Strategy Group and the Participatory Budget Group. You can find more at www.neweconomy.org.au That's w.neweconomy.org.au CoCanberra was also begun in 2016 when the then convener of Sea Change, Liam Lilly, called for a follow-up meeting from a previous cooperative's networking day. We remain a Sea Change group. CoCanberra is building the new economy on the ground using the concept of climate co-ops to provide for our needs in a way which is compatible with a thriving community and natural world. In the process, communities obtain ownership and control of the organisations which meet their needs. We've begun this journey with the Prepower Renewable Energy Cooperative System. This model is designed to adapt to other places and other sectors easily. We acknowledge the help received through an ACT Government Community Zero Emissions Grant in 2019. In tandem with Nina Canberra Region, we hold monthly meetups. These are not organising meetings, but are for education, networking and letting people know what we're up to. These are held on the last Monday of every month at 7pm, and everybody's welcome. You can find out what's coming up by visiting the CoCanberra website at canberracooperatives.com.au. CoCanberra and Nina work with Radio Behind the Lines on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra to produce the Align in the Sound podcast, which distributes audio from these three aligned sources. Search SoundCloud or iTunes for Align in the Sound to find lots of amazing talks and interviews. We hope you enjoy this combined Nina Canberra and CoCanberra meetup. I'm Scotty Foster. Welcome to the CoCanberra Nina Canberra Hub meetup for this month. Now we're joined. We're joined by Matthew Slater, um, who is a guy who's been doing all sorts of amazing stuff in the uh, mutual credit scene over well over a decade. Um, he's got uh, an amazing CV, and he's going to tell us a little bit about that shortly. Um, yeah, I guess. One way you could look at this is is through the enclosure sort of framework. Um, everybody would be familiar with the, the Scottish enclosures, where in the start of the Industrial Revolution, the, the the lords of the Scottish feudal system began essentially swapping the livestock type on their land 
when the peasants had been creating the wealth for the lords in the past, they were moved off the land forcibly and sheep were put on to provide wool for the new markets in the, uh, in the new uh, weaving mills. And that pushed tons and tons of people into the, uh, into the cities um, where they were dispossessed of their land. And, yeah, you've heard of the gin craze. That was one result, a massive amount of alcoholism. and It was uh, not a good time. Dickens can tell you about that sort of stuff anyway. <laughs> I guess that's the start of this sort of this story. And many other things besides the land have become enclosed, uh, things that were commons like knowledge, like, um, I don't know, there is even the rain in some states in, in the US has got laws around it and you're not allowed to catch it without the licence. So <laughs> it seems pretty odd to us here, but um, it can happen. So anything basically is available for enclosure. Um, you can look at the web and in your, your metadata. That's also being enclosed. It's your click rates, your, all of that stuff, which is getting sold in this market that we don't know about. So one of the things that uh, has, been, uh, has been enclosed is actually our, our means of trading. Um, which is essentially money, which is issued by the nation states and the banking system and stuff. And I'm sure that everybody on this call is quite familiar with uh, the damage and the uh, the inappropriate uh, system of money that we have at the moment, uh, exponential growth on a finite planet, you name it. There are many, many problems with our money. So to pull things out of an enclosed situation and bring them back into the community's control is called recommoning. So if we can pull things out of a situation where they're being controlled by others and we have to essentially pay them in order to access whatever it might be and start doing it ourselves, we enter the commons realm again, which is basically where all of our needs were met way back when. Uh, so it's, it's definitely feasible. Uh, Matthew Slater is going to outline some, some ways that uh, our trade can be brought back into the realm of the commons. Uh, Matthew Slater, take it away. And if you'd like to uh, introduce yourself, that would be great. Well, I started uh, in activism uh, over the age of 30. I tried to write some software for my local Let's group, and I was looking for a little niche in which I could become an expert. But it didn't go too well because nobody used that software. And I came back to it a few years later, much more determined, with a bit more experience uh, in a completely different field and with a partnership with the local Let's Group. And I lived in Geneva at that time. And so um, I was able to build some software and get it used and partner with the, the guy who ran the Let's in Geneva. And we built an organization that then hosted that software for what is now about 300 groups around France. And I'll show you a map of that in a minute. But I just got started then. Um, shortly after, I was invited to build the New South Wales Time Banking Network. Uh, so that's a, a government-run system. Uh, and that runs my software as well. And, and that continues to this day. And in all that time, I've also been working on monetary theory because it's been a source of fascination to me. When I was writing my software, I wanted to have a settings page on which you could define your currency. 
And the questions you ask on that page obsessed me for years because I wanted to know, you know, what types of currencies are there? What are the options for each type of currency? So I was trying to break down currency into its smallest components. And it was a really, really difficult task. And eventually I figured out the reason why by talking a lot with my friend, a uh, sociologist, Jem Bendel, with whom uh, I made the Money and Society MOOC. The reason you can't categorize currency is because it's a completely social phenomenon and everybody views it from a different perspective. Uh, even uh, across different sides of the political spectrum uh, and the class system, money and currency is viewed very differently. So eventually, I just left the software with some simple settings and started reading some more and studying uh, the social nature of currency. And so I've come up with a whole lot of uh, theories and ways of talking about money, uh, which you wouldn't normally hear from a software developer. And I've been able to contribute these and, and talk to people in the complementary currency movement about that while providing software in a, in a very practical way. So my expertise then is the software and the networking, because I was nomading for 10 years. So I, I talked to everybody. I've stopped that now. Um, and my expertise is less in the area of actually running and managing real-world systems. Uh, I guess people here will have questions about that, um, and I'll hopefully be able to point you in good directions. Uh, when it comes to questions, this is quite an intimate session, so uh, feel free to talk about what you're doing in your little corner of Australia, and, and we'll see if we can relate what I'm saying, which is always very general, uh, to the specific stuff that you're getting on with. Uh, finally, by way of introduction, I've come up with a, a master plan, as it were, which I'm offering to the world called the Credit Commons, which is a way of uh, taking money back into the commons. And we do that not by touching the, 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 the real money system at all. We do it by creating our own systems of exchange and using the systems of mutual credit uh, such that we can create them ourselves. What we do in mutual credit is not really defined as money because banks don't create it. And so it occupies a slightly different section in law and enables us to get on with it to a large degree ourselves. Um, so there's an emphasis there on slide one about balance, um, which is an essential part of mutual credit. Uh, there's a picture of the timebanking.com.au, the, the site which I maintain, and another picture of all the, the système échange locaux in France, uh, about 300 of them, which I'm running as part of an organisation called Community Forge. There's a link to the Money and Society MOOC. We stopped that because uh, it was pretty intense work. Every six months we run it and we tried to answer as many students' questions and mark as many essays as we could, Gemini. But now the presentations are still up and you can enjoy uh, six to seven hours of content broken into four sections, which are introduction to money, history of money, money and society, uh, and then alternatives to money. And there's lots of links and resources in that. 
And finally, the link to the Credit Commons white paper. It's a nice, easy, easy read, about 15 pages, including pictures, um, covers some of what I'll say today. And I'll talk more about that later. So uh, let's begin with uh, an explanation of mutual credit. I'm sure many of you know how it works, but I'm going to go from scratch and maybe try and give you an insight that you maybe didn't have before. So most people, when they imagine money, they think of it as a kind of token that passes from hand to hand. And it works as a medium of exchange because it has a value. It's, it's an asset and you swap it for an asset that you want and then you earn it. Sorry, that's in the wrong order. Let's start from the beginning. You sell an asset you want and you receive this asset, uh, a neutral asset, which is like a token, and then you can buy something with it. And thus you can exchange what you want for what you have using the token in the middle. And that's possible because it breaks the transaction into two separate swaps and it kind of bridges uh, what you, the exchange of what you want for what you have. Uh, by splitting that exchange between two different parties. And to work like that, money just needs to have the value, an asset. Uh, but when you think of money as just a token, uh, or even like a gold coin, it is just an asset. It's a commodity. And that has some problems because you don't always know what the commodity is worth. If it's gold, then you've got a big market for gold and the price will go up and down, but it might stay more or less stable. The big scale, <clears throat> it needs the government to stabilize the gold market. They have to intervene in the gold market, uh, partly to make sure there's enough gold going around and partly also to stabilize the price of gold against all the goods and services. And that can be very difficult and expensive, and sometimes even possible, uh, impossible. Imagine you're running a country and you're trying to fix the gold price within that country, and the gold price changes in other countries. Well, that means all the people are gonna uh, want to sell the gold from your country or buy the gold back in. So you can't control the quantity very well and you have to have lots of customs and exercise, uh, excise and it's, it's very difficult and a lot of work. Uh, and there's always a black market to manage. And sometimes there just isn't enough gold to have the, the money system work properly. So this notion that money is a token is quite problematic because you can't control the quantity or the price uh, at the same time of the tokens. So there's another way of doing money where you can create it uh, literally out of nothing. Um, this idea of creation out of nothing happens a lot in the universe. Think about the creation of matter and antimatter at the same time. First of all, you've got nothing and then something happens, I don't know exactly what, in the Big Bang, but then you've got matter and antimatter. But when they, when they come together, matter and antimatter cancel each other out and you've got nothing. And it happens also in waves. You've got a still surface of a pond, you throw a stone in 
And then the level of the pond, which was level, goes like that. It goes up and down at the same time. And the up and the down sort of cancel each other out. And this is what happens when you create money as debt. You, uh, you have an empty balance sheet and you put the liability on one side and the assets on the other. And generally what happens is the liability stays on the balance sheet and then the asset hops around between different accounts where it is used like a medium of exchange. So you can create the asset out of nothing, but you also create the liability. And then with this kind of money, the liability is supposed to go around, and sorry, the asset is supposed to go around and it comes back to the hold of the liability and it cancels out. And that's called a monetary circuit. So you can create the money as much as you like, as long as you can earn it back. Um, so this kind of credit money is very, very useful, especially if you can't control things like gold or the assets, or the pure assets. Um, and this is how uh, modern money is created, 97% of it. It's created as credit money in banks. So they have some assets underneath, um, although even that is the kind of credit money because it's not gold anymore. Uh, what happens is the government creates the notes and coins and it says, well, we're just going to make those out of nothing. So those are, according to some people, pure assets. And then the government holds those as assets um, and it creates the other 90, sorry, the, the banks hold those as assets and it creates the other 97% of money as pure credit and debt. And then the, the cash, the assets, you're allowed to withdraw it from the bank when you want cash. But meanwhile, the credit and the debt is just moving around between all the bank accounts. And that's most of the money supply and most of the circulating money. Uh, but this is a bit of a racket because when the banks do that, they don't really do it as a public service. Um, they make um, us, the, the borrowers of the money, take the risk uh, while they get all the reward, basically interest, in a very risk-free way. And if they lend too much or they lend in a too risky way and uh, their gains from interest don't cover the default risk, then the government will bail them out. So some people really object to the idea of uh, fiat money or credit money, and they think creating it out of nothing is a fraud. But really, the fraud is at a different level. It's on the level of the governance of the money creation system and who takes the risk and who gets the reward. Because credit money is really, really useful tool. And when we talk about mutual credit, we're creating credit money within members of a group. It's only valid within members of that group. And for that reason, we can uh, make the group democratic and accountable, and we can manage the risk and reward, uh, the, the risk of default, but also the reward of increased trade between the members of that group. And we can spread that out according to our own rules. So it's possible to make that money democratic and accountable. 
So I'm just going to show you how it works quickly on the balance sheet. Don't get put off. This is extremely simple. Um, on the left, we've got a list of transactions. On the right, we've got everybody's account balances. And so when we start the system, everybody's at zero, as you would expect. So we're not going to create any money. We're just going to do a transaction. Here we go. Alice, uh, let's say the, uh, the money is going from Alice to Bob because Bob has given Alice some almonds and that was 10 units worth of almonds. So it doesn't matter now what the units are. Um, although I've suggested it might be euros. And we can see the balances have changed. Alice has gone down 10, Bob has gone up 10. And notice at the bottom, the total is zero. The total of all the balances is zero. And that means that nothing has left the system and nothing has entered the system. The balances are only imbalances between the members of the system. And we could do that again. Uh, this time, uh, Bob gives Charlotte five for a different kind of nuts. You can see the balances. Again, they still add up to zero. And uh, Charlotte gives Alice 20. Uh, says Charlie on the other side. And the balances all add up to zero. And so it goes on. You could do multilateral exchange forever and ever. Uh, nothing comes in and nothing goes out of the system, but you're keeping track of everybody's balances going up or down. And the balance means that you owe the rest of the members of the system a certain amount, a certain amount's worth of your goods and services, or the other members of the system collectively owe you a certain amount's worth of their goods and services. Um, some people worry about going negative and being in debt to the system. But if you look at the balances, you'll see that nobody in the system, um, somebody always has to be negative in order for the others to be positive. And there's no um, stigma about having a negative balance, about owing the other members in a mutual credit system. Uh, there's no interest. And it's a, a completely different mechanism to this uh, huge power imbalance that comes from the banking system where you have uh, essentially a government licensed cartel, which is only allowed to do the lending. And then you end up with the poor people always paying interest to the rich. And so then the, the poor and the rich, they share in this hegemonic set of values that says, well, it's really bad to be in debt. You should always pay your debts. You should feel bad. Uh, but also uh, the interest can sometimes make the debts unpayable. And so it becomes a trap that you don't want to get into. And none of that uh, is true in a mutual credit system. It's like uh, when you, uh, when everybody goes on a ramble, you know, over, uh, do you have rambles in Australia? It's a long walk and, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 people might go on it. They don't all walk at exactly the same uh, level, some go ahead and some go behind, but they all get to the end eventually. And it doesn't matter who's ahead and who's behind because you can't all walk at the same level and who cares anyway? Okay. So the, the purpose of a mutual credit system 
is to ensure that the members of the group are giving as much as they are receiving. So when we talk about it being a medium of exchange or performing a function of a medium of exchange, we really mean that it's a true exchange that you give as much as you receive in goods and services, um, that you consume as much as you produce. And so it offers you that kind of fairness and, and that kind of fairness is written in the accounts. Um, and if you compare that to the money system, the mainstream money system, we all go to work, we get money, some of it's taxed, about as much as goes off in interest, and then we go and buy things from the shops. But there's no real way of measuring that um, what we produced was equal to what we receive. And there's all kinds of loopholes as well that allow uh, the financial elites to extract value uh, from the money if they're not also extracting money in various ways. So if you have a mutual credit system, it says, look, I produce this much, this value worth of goods and services, and I consume this value worth of goods and services within this group. So it offers you the accounting for equal exchange. Um, it also offers you, uh, as a group, a sense of autonomy because you make an enclosed organization. And within that organization, you can make your own rules. So you have autonomy. Um, and while there is uh, any measure of freedom of speech and freedom to assemble, uh, we should be using these, this notion of making groups and cooperating within them to expand our autonomy rather than letting um, the state and the financial sector uh, get between us in all of our transactions. You know, so um, if I'm a uh, um, boomer generation and I've saved up lots of money in my house, should I put that money in the bank while my children are borrowing from the bank and therefore the bank is getting in between us and taking the interest, or should I lend it to my children directly? Um, so that's what I mean by autonomy within organizations. If we can just organize ourselves, um, we can have a lot more control over the way that we do things. Uh, another consequence of that is the self-efficiency, self-sufficiency. Uh, when we uh, work together, we can produce more of what we need uh, and consume ourselves. So that's like taking the supermarket out of the equation. Um, another purpose, uh, perhaps more in the business context, uh, looking through a financial lens, is that mutual credit provides free liquidity between uh, trading members of the association. And that means if I want to buy something from you and we're in the same club, I don't have to obtain the money first. Uh, this is a problem with the, the mainstream money. You can't just spend it and then earn it back later. You have to go to the bank, talk to the bank manager, assure the bank manager that you're solvent, uh, and they'll give you some money that you have to then give back and you pay interest on it. So that's kind of liquidity. You only need the money between the time that you um, 
buy something and later sell it. And why, why should you have to pay for that if there's no risk or, or very little risk that you're not going to be able to sell the stuff later? And so you can get that liquidity for free between members of a community. And so it reduces your credit costs if you can have free liquidity from your trading partners. And finally, people do mutual credit because it builds up a sense of community. Uh, it gives us a reason to come together, to govern ourselves, to make decisions, and also to rely on each other, which is critical for community. Community, as Charles Eisenstein says, isn't really about getting together to drink beer and watch the football. C community is about giving gifts to each other. And that happens in mutual credit systems all the time. So one question we can maybe tackle later is, um, if you build a mutual credit system, should you think of it as replacing the money system or complementing the money system? Uh, and I'll give you a clue. The answer is that in small groups, we cannot replace the money system. But if everybody was in a mutual credit system, or in the same interlinked system, then why would you need money at all? Uh, what you use uh, money outside the group for is for trading outside the group. There's no need for me to get dollars in order to trade with people who will give me a line of credit. So um, I'm not an expert on governance, but I do just want to point out, if you're running a mutual credit group, You've got all the same questions as you have in a normal social economic institution, like who holds the keys, who's got the password, uh, who manages the bank account, how do you make decisions. But in a mutual credit, you have these particular questions that pertain to the creation of credit. And those are, how much credit do you actually give to people? And that takes the form of, What's the lowest minimum balance below zero that any account can go down to? So in the example above, the accounts are getting down to minus 15, minus 20, can't remember. But soon enough, one of the traders would get to, I don't know, minus 50, and they wouldn't be able to spend anymore. And they'd get a phone call from the administrator of the system saying, look, maybe it's time that you stop consuming and started producing. And so that's how you minimize the risk uh, between members of a mutual credit system. If you let somebody spend to minus a thousand and then they die or their business goes bust, then not all the other members of that group have somehow got to make that thousand up. They've got to cover the loss. So what you do is you agree the minimum limits for every account. And some accounts might have more minimum limits than others. It's possible to give some accounts Zero, they can own, that they have to earn before they spend. But maybe that's not mutual. Uh, I've been discussing with people recently, what do we understand when we talk about mutual credit? What exactly is being mutualized? And I'm arguing that it's the risk of default uh, that makes uh, mutual credit mutual. Um, then the same question has to be asked not only between members of your system, but if you want to trade with other systems, how much credit should each system give to each other? So you have to get together and do a process of governance 
if you want to open trade negotiations with other systems using credit. Of course, you can just give them dollars, but then the whole point is to avoid the use of dollars. And so we avoid the use of dollars by doing governance and politics between ourselves. Question time. It's Kevin here. One of the problems, um, some people can collect too much money uh, or, or tokens and um, effectively corner the market. Likewise, so how do, you, how do you solve that problem? Well, it's the same problem actually as the uh, having minimum uh, balance limits. So you stop people getting too much into debt but you also stop them getting too much into credit. Um, and if somebody did, you know, accumulate a lot of tokens in their account, uh, sorry, not a lot of tokens, a lot of assets in their account, such that it was making it difficult for other people to earn um, those assets back and get back to zero if they wanted to, um, those, uh, those assets or that positive balance is really just a community negotiation. You could have a meeting and you could say, well, look, this guy, he can't spend his, his, uh, his credit. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we could just take it out of the account if we want to. Uh, maybe he would consent to it. Uh, but, you know, if he's not spending it, what's the point in even having it? Maybe you could borrow it from him. You could say, look, Jack, you're not spending these tokens. We'd like them in circulation. Uh, let's uh, let's distribute them a bit or let other people earn them from somewhere else for now. And if you want them again later, you can have them. Another way is you could uh, give everybody a bigger negative balance to compensate for the tokens which somebody is hoarding out of circulation. So there's lots of solutions. Um, it's not like hoarding gold. Uh, that's a serious problem when you hoard gold that there's a shortage, the price goes up, you can only then get money by borrowing it from rich people, uh, and then you, you're increasing the gap between rich and poor. You see the difference? Yes, uh, but then that brings the next, uh, next argument that's uh, often given against uh, uh, these sort of currencies, and that is that you, you don't have a use for some of the money, uh, but you would like someone else to use the money, and, um, and it's only fair for you to be given a reward for lending the money. That now brings in the whole question of interest. And oh, when I said lending the money, as a possible solution, it was definitely without interest. You don't pay to borrow mutual credit units because they're not scarce, because the system could just create some more or confiscate them. It's just a matter of uh, how do you want to make this problem look on the accounts? I mean, look at it in the real world. Forget the money. In the real world, somebody has given a lot to the community and they don't want anything back right now. Well, that's not really them holding the community hostage in any way. The community shouldn't be held hostage. The community should be happy. You know, they've received these goods and... Uh, Nobody's asking for anything back for them. Could be seen as a gift. You just want to make it clear in the accounting what's going on, you know. That's not really the argument that I hear. Uh, the argument is that if, if you do save money, 
you're actually not spending it. Um, you could spend it, and if you don't spend it but you give it to someone else to spend, then you should get some reward for that. It's a good thing to save money so that you can use it to build something, um, so that you so that you you can invest it in something. And if you if you in, save money and you invest it, you should get a return on your investment. Is the argument? Okay, I've got it. So the answer is that uh, mutual credit is first and foremost for the purpose of serving as a medium of exchange. It's not about raising capital. If you did use it for raised capital, you could um, introduce interest, but the interest would be about risk management, not about rental. So when we borrow money from banks, we pay much more interest than the risk management really demands. Um, the, the larger part, I understand, of the interest we pay to banks is basically a rental fee because we're borrowing a scarce resource or a supposedly scarce resource from people who have it and who don't need it now. So it's like paying rent on land. But you wouldn't do that in mutual credit. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think we've lost Matt again. Sorry, my connection was bad. Ah, here we go. You're back now. Uh, I just wanted to touch on the subject of blockchain. This is one slide. Um, everybody now, when they're thinking about currency, they think, um, thinking about implementing a currency, they think probably they should get a blockchain. But many people don't really know what it is. Uh, they don't know why they should have a blockchain, except everybody's talking about it. And I just want to stress that... Um, uh, if you're not sure, I think of a blockchain just as a clever database. Uh, why is it clever? Maybe two reasons. One is that there's copies of it all over everywhere, so you can't really destroy it. Um, not if you're the government or not if you're a meteorite um, hitting just one part of the planet. Well, even there's, uh, there's one copy of the blockchain on a satellite, I understand. So you can't destroy the blockchain, even if you could destroy the whole of civilization. Um, pretty good feature, but maybe not the most important thing. Um, uh, the other interesting feature about blockchain is that uh, not only can you not destroy it, but you can't hack it. You, you get this really, really reliable record um, and every 10 minutes, it sort of writes the next block. And by the time you've gone down, you know, two or three blocks, there's no way anybody is going to be able to rewrite the previous blocks um, and the subsequent blocks. Because each block takes a tremendous amount of computing power to create. So all the networks together uh, trying to create the next block, and then one gets lucky, uh, it solves a huge math problem, and then it creates the next block, and then it becomes very difficult to change the, the database. So the blockchain gives you a really, really uh, reliable record of history. And again, with community currencies, where you might want to go back and change a transaction, it's not really what you want. You know, and if you've only got a few hundred people, there's a high level of trust between them. You don't need that concrete concrete record 
Um, when it's good is when you have anarcho-capitalists who don't trust the government, they don't trust the infrastructure, and they want to run everything by themselves. Um, they don't trust each other, basically. That's uh, what blockchains are invented for. And, but you can still have this absolutely reliable record between them. Another reason it serves anarcho-capitalists very well is because the token that is used as the uh, unit of account and the medium of exchange on the blockchain is pure um, asset. There's no liability side to it. And the only way you can move that token from one account to another account, uh, which is to say spend it or perhaps confiscate it, is by knowing the private key. And the private key is yours and yours alone. That's the thing in cryptography. Um, you can even uh, memorize the private key and then it only exists in your head. And that means that the tokens in your account are kind of absolutely your property because only you can release them from your account. And it's not like if you own a house and it's your property because uh, thieves could come and do, take your house off you or co a corrupt land registry could uh, remove it or you could lose it in a war or something. So your house isn't absolute property. Um, but anarcho-capitalists are strong believers in strong property. And when you have the private key to your account in your head, that's what you would call strong property. But again, that doesn't really speak to us as people who believe in community, uh, people who believe in shared management of resources. It's not what we're after. So there are other blockchains that don't emphasize this, this way of token creation or the absolute property, but we don't need those features either on the whole. So we can use blockchains. And one of the best reasons I've come across to use a blockchain is that the people offering you the money to do the interesting projects, they're all looking for blockchains because they don't know anything except how to give money in a way that pleases rich people. Um, so a lot of projects now use blockchains that really don't need to. All the work that I'm doing hasn't touched blockchains and I'm really steering clear of them, um, partly because they're not really trusted technology you know, there's lots of blockchains around. You don't know how long it's going to last. Um, you might have to migrate from one blockchain to another in, in the future. Um, and if you just write some good, clean code, it's much easier to migrate and also to manage in the future. Any questions about blockchains? Yeah, I just want to make a comment. I um, was at the NINA conference in Perth and there was a big presentation on the blockchains. and um, coming from a community development background, that was the big thing that jumped out at me. Where's the community? And there wasn't any. It, it, it's almost like it was opposed to community because it was all about the information, the information. It was just a comment. Uh oh <laughs> I think we've lost Matt again. Sorry, my connection was bad. Ah, here we go. You're back now. Uh, I was just adding that uh, very often the people behind blockchain are maths and physics grads or are big nerds and they're much more interested in the software than in the community. Um, and many, many blockchain projects, they start with 
an idea, I would say a great idea. Um, they get finance, they build something, and then they can't find any users, and then they die. And it was all a huge waste. I see that, uh, I've been watching that for a, a long time, as somebody who has uh, tens of thousands of users, and I can't raise hardly a, a dollar for my work. Okay, so we're going to talk a bit about what I'm calling social mutual credit, and this idea of we create money between ourselves. Um, so Let's was created by um, communities in Canada in the mid to late 80s, uh, but Michael Linton is famous for systematically writing down the Let's System design manual. Uh, it was never published as a book as far as I know, but uh, there's a lovely... Um, HTML presentation of it. I've got the screen grab here. Um, it spread uh, relatively rapidly throughout Canada and the United States and Britain. Uh, it was strong in Australia, New Zealand, but also in Europe. Uh, there's groups that go under different names. Uh, well, in France, it's a Système Echange Locaux, but practically the same name. But in uh, Germany, it's a Tauschringer, which is more like an exchange circle. Um, and in other countries as well. And as it spread, it's sort of, uh, each group would define it for themselves in a new way and do things in slightly different ways. Um, and they diverged from this um, rigid thing that Michael Linton had written down. But then that's kind of a, a good thing if you think about it, because it means that the model is adapting to local circumstances and to local mental models and local cultures. Um, this peaked in the mid-1990s. Um, there was a recession in the early 90s, um, a lot of questionable. And you hear stories of people managing to live about 50% of their uh, economic life within local LETS groups, only a few. But then people really enjoyed LETS for the social contact it gave them meaningful interactions with other members of the community. And since the mid-1990s, I don't really have any data, um, it stopped growing. Uh-oh, <laughs> I think we've lost Matt again. Sorry, my connection was bad. Ah, here we go, you're back now. So I was just saying about CS Australia, founded by Tim Jenkin, who's in a recent movie called Escape from Pretoria about the time he escaped from Pretoria High Security Prison as an anti-apartheid terrorist in the 80s. And then he went on to help the ANC, and then he went on to uh, build this moneyless exchange system. Uh, and he did it very early on, uh, starting in the early 2000s, I think. And he made it possible to start new groups within the same system and to trade between the groups. So that scaled uh, very rapidly. Uh, and it was hundreds of groups around the world. And then Australia um, said, we want more control over our system, which meant that the Australian system, all the, all the groups on the system would trade with all the groups on the main system. And so the intertrading became possible between web servers. And I thought that was very significant. So as CES Australia, um, still going strong. 
Um, so that's enough about let's. Uh, CES, strictly speaking, isn't let's. Tim calls it community exchange, um, but it's quite close to let's in practice. Uh, in practice, very few let's trade between themselves, between different groups. But that's also because there's not very much infrastructure to do that. Uh, all the groups on Community Forge, uh, my organization, are able to connect to the CES system and trade with each other and with members of CES. But uh, only about a third of them do so. So moving on to time banking, um, the other main form of mutual credit that started about a decade after Let's, and in many ways it took over Let's in the popular imagination. And one reason it became strong uh, was because it was a very social movement. Instead of Let's, where you've got this idea of grassroots groups starting themselves and managing themselves and volunteers burning out, uh, in time banking, it was much more about um, working with the most vulnerable members of the community. And that won a lot of government support. So governments would finance time banking and foundations and things like that. And it connected to the, the professional social services class of people. So they're often run by professional managers. And they did proper fundraising. Uh, they paid full-time staff. And also they had national, and still do, national organizations. So there's Time Banks USA, where it all started uh, when uh, Edgar Kahn wrote this book, No More Throwaway People. But then there's Time Banks in the UK. Uh, they've got uh, a few hundred groups. There's an active network in New Zealand. I, I think it's maybe 20 to 30 groups, but they're, they're strong. Um, and then there's this uh, entirely government-run network in Australia that I built the software for. Um, I also know of a network in Israel. There's a network in Italy where I live, but I don't really know how active they are because I spend all my time online and not speaking Italian in the local community. Um, I wonder if uh, time banking has peaked now. Um, I don't have the statistics, but I do see that uh, not a lot of new software is being developed and not a lot of new money is coming into the movement. So moving on to my next slide that you can't see, I'm just asking if, uh, if time banking and let's are past their peak, what's next, what's coming? Uh, what forms of social mutual credit are in the pipeline? What might become popular? Um, if you look at models like transition towns or permaculture, it's hard to see in them the notion of exchange or quantized exchange, quantified exchange or accounting between the members or even production and consumption between the members. Okay, in, in permaculture, there's a lot of food production and people will eat and exchange uh, specifically food, but they don't keep account of it. Um, so um, it's as if the idea of the, the rebuilding the economy isn't very active or present 
in the current social movements? Or maybe you can think of uh, examples in Australia. We'll get to that on the next slide. Um, what has happened in the last decade is a lot of people have thought, oh, why don't we reinvent community exchange? And they built apps. Uh, again, like the blockchain, it's the approach of software first. So lots and lots of apps have come out with advertising campaigns or not, saying, come and download our app and join our community and exchange stuff with people and do the accounting with us on our database. Uh, very often they'll say, and we'll give you 10 tokens to start. And then you know it's not really mutual credit. You know that they're, they've got a different monetary model. Even if they talk about exchange, you know, you don't give tokens away for free in a system of exchange. Um, so some of the apps have been lovely and nice and they've been very usable, but they haven't gained any significant membership um, or passed on any open source software for the rest of us to use or really left any meaningful legacy. One thing I would like to point out that uh, I'm very supportive of is a movement in the US, it's quite small compared to time banking, uh, called the Mutual Aid Networks. And the idea there is not to build a single organization in a single place, but to build a network of all the different kinds of social actors and organizations around town, around the country, around the world, and give them the tools to share resources, including the accounting tools. So in Mutual Aid Network, you can sign up as an individual or an organization. You can list what you have to offer, uh, either your individual skills or resources or your organizational skills and resources, and then you can trade those skills and resources and do accounting for them in various ways. Um, mutual aid network goes beyond mutual credit um, into things like sharing money and doing savings pools. And while we're on savings pools, there's a great network in New Zealand doing that. And I recommend uh, that you would look at that and talk to them. So this is all, that there are forms of economic and social activism around, but the new ones haven't really caught hold yet. And, and they deserve your looking at and maybe joining and supporting. Any questions? Again, what, what was the name of the uh, New Zealand Savings Pool? Well, there's uh, an organisation called livingeconomies.nz and they promote a range of products, but they're not, as far as I know, an actual organisational group. They're more like a, a front for some ideas. So Helen, who runs that, um, has a few boxes of books and she takes them around to conferences and talks about these ideas. Um, and the, the savings pools, I don't think they have their own website and they don't have their own app. Because again, like all the best initiatives, they've got absolutely no money to develop software. So you can go to Living Economies and find out about savings pools. Savings pools is a very, very slow way of building. Um, everybody puts a bit of money in every month and then you start lending it out to one person at a time. And then they, as they put money in every month, they pay back their loans. Uh, but over the long term, they're extremely good 
trust building, money sharing structures. But you know, don't expect much within a year. Sorry, I interrupted. Right, Matt, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, we've just started our Let's program in uh, Canberra, in Tuggeranong, mm -hmm. and we're just but still looking at the software. Like we use a CES because I, mm -hmm. I was in one in Queensland, and that was working quite well. Mm -hmm. So we sort of starting that. We started mutual aid, and then like our version didn't have any currents counting or anything. We just we're helping each other after during the shutdown. So then we started, but we're having a bit of trouble with the software, with that CES software. We're just wanting to know if there's anything else, like you, the one that you were talking about that you did in France. Was that the same system? or? Yeah, that's an open source system. You can download it and run it yourself, or you can have a free hosted version from communityforge.net. Forge. Oh, okay. Um, we can have a chat about that on a, a separate call. Yeah. Um, Is that what you would recommend? But, I mean, you're saying that that was... Well, of course, I recommend my own. Yeah, but um, also I'm, I'm actively working. <laughs> Sorry, do you mean a different model or a different software? Model, I suppose, yeah. Okay. Well, um, this is a time when we need to invent new models. Mm. Um, my software is old. I'm working on the next generation. It's taken me a very long time. The next generation should be pretty great in terms of being sustainable, cheap to run, modular, so you can hack just bits of it without breaking the whole lot. Uh, or build your own app for it and use the same back end. It should be interoperable with all the other lets. But that's, you know, probably a couple of years away at least. Um, meanwhile, CES, it has the interoperability with all the neighboring groups. And that's, that could be quite an important factor. If you want to start a new system, the ability to trade with your neighboring groups is quite valuable. Um, also, if the members are already familiar with that software, that's quite valuable as well. Uh, changing software tends to upset users. So there could be reasons for staying with CES, not least because they also are working towards, um, I understand, a complete rewrite of the software. Although at the moment, it's even older than mine. Um, in a different context, I'm happy to talk to you a bit more about that. Uh, about making a good choice. Uh, there is also Time Banks USA offer software to groups. I think there might be a charge for that. Um, but I wouldn't recommend any other packages apart from those three. And, and now we might be starting up a community garden, so you don't really see like the same people. You don't really see that mm. being compatible. Well... In my view, if you, want to, if you want to build a community that's going to have a meaningful level of exchange, you want to bring everybody onto the same platform where they can get to know each other, see what each other are doing, uh, and have more to trade with each other. So you want to get out of this silo mentality. Have you heard of silos in software? Um, it's the idea that each organization has its own database and therefore they can kind of own their members, but the members can't see from one organization to another. And so it's a bit regressive. 
I'm going to cover that in a couple of slides. Um, so this is why I value the, the idea of intertrading between groups and interoperability very highly. So we can create small groups, manage and govern our small groups, but still be a member of a, a much larger community. I'll talk about that later as well. So what you would want then is some general purpose community software which does accounting, but which you can also add other features into. You see what I mean? If you wanted to specifically support gardening in some way, you could have a, uh, a system a bit like uh, Drupal, the one I use, where you can add modules not without too much difficulty and you know add a content type about gardening and build lists uh, control the access to that content type add fields to it do you know the sort of thing i mean yeah okay not that i could do it but yeah no but uh people can pick that up people who are a bit technical can pick up drupal and build useful websites that's why i started in drupal in the first place because it meant that i didn't have to build the software for everybody i would just build the modules and that's still true to some extent. Has that uh, answered your question, Kate? Yes, thank you. Great. Look, I've got just a little one. I guess it stems from the, the old idea that the dollar was tied to gold. It was actually tied to something tangible. Uh, are community currents or mutual currencies uh, configurable to do that? Now, like What I've been thinking is, one of the one of the greatest uh, opportunities that we have to draw carbon out of the atmosphere is to build soil carbon and, and by organic farming and just letting nature run and that sort of thing. Could we tie our currency to make it really encourage um, uh, soil carbon so that it's sort of like a Bitcoin where it's mined by a computer, there's something that happens and then the coin is created. Could we create a community currency value through creating a ton of soil carbon or something well that's kind of what the carbon emissions trading scheme was supposed to do where they would in that system they gave everybody or every major polluter i don't know the details at all uh a certain kind of allocation which you could think of as a load of credits that came from nowhere and they said, well, you can sell these credits in the market. The credit represents the right to pollute. Um, and of course, the system was designed by Goldman Sachs. So they were able to make a lot of money on the actual market. Uh, using free market ideology, they said, well, just make it tradable in a free market. And as long as we own the market, everything will work. And it did for them. Um, so we can do similar things. Uh, that system was designed by uh, it required that you had a token in order to emit a certain amount of carbon. So there was a demand for the tokens built in. When you do something like soil regeneration, if you, I mean, there's different ways you could imagine it working, but you, you need to create a demand for the tokens. Otherwise, they're not really worth anything. And we might not have the power to do that ourselves in small groups. I mean, what am I going to do with a token that 
that uh, I guess the first model you think of is it's an acknowledgement or a certificate that says I've regenerated X tons of soil. Okay, so we're in a group of, I don't know, 100 people living in the suburbs. I've got a certificate that says I, earned, I created subsoil. Why does anybody else want that token? So you have to answer that kind of question. Um, it's what I call an, an acknowledgement currency. You can dish them out, but actually they're pure assets. There's no demand for them, and they don't necessarily circulate. And what's going to circulate is dollars because people have dollar-denominated debts and they have to pay interest on the banks. So it really takes a concerted effort to spend those currencies because there's a risk that you might um, earn it and not be able to spend it. Mm, fascinating. Thank you. You can, you can also do things like um, back a currency with a forest. And then if somebody wants to cash out, all they have to do is chop down the trees and sell the wood for money. And then they can cash out. You see, so it's kind of a good idea, but if it, if it goes wrong, it's a bad idea. <laughs> Great, thank you. So next section about um, mutual credit in business. This is something that has interested me for a long time, but I've never been able to get into it because I've got all these lets using my software and I can't do something else completely different because there's a, a great deal of dependence on me, which is uh, not the ideal situation. Um, so mutual credit in business is a thing and quite a big thing already. There's a uh, mostly American organization called the International Reciprocal Trade Association. That's IRTA.com. And their membership comprises of, I think, hundreds of business barter networks. Um, a lot of them are mom and pop shops, they're called. Um, and a lot of them are considerably larger networks with many hundreds of members, uh, business members. And so if you want to start uh, one of these uh, business partner networks, the first thing you need is some software. And there's uh, a lot of packages of software available to run a business partner network. Probably none that I'm aware of open source. So you end up going to uh, a software shop that produces this one software package that runs a business barter network for you. And you will pay um, by the month for that software. And you'll pay basically whatever they want to charge. So some of the software is good and up to date. Some of it's quite innovative. Some of it's a bit old and clunky and hopefully cheaper. And then in order to uh, pay the rent on your software, you have to go out and recruit businesses, which is not a bad thing, uh, and then you charge the businesses dollars to be in your network because you have to pay for the software in dollars. Um, so I understand that uh, Bartercard, one of the biggest networks, um, it has national networks all over the world and is a, uh, a company listed on the UK Stock Exchange. 
Um, to be a member of the UK will cost upwards of a thousand pounds to join that system for a year. But that's not all because uh, in those networks, they're very hungry for money. Not only do they have to pay the cost of the software, you have to pay for the mom and pop who run the system an income. So they also have a transaction fee. So if you might do a hundred dollars trade in what's called trade credit, you might also pay uh, $7 to the mom and pop as expense for running the system, 7%, uh, both on um, sales and on receipts. So it's kind of like 15% tax on uh, transactions. Um, but then it's even worse because you have to pay tax to the government. If you sell $100 worth of goods, you have to pay sales tax. At, uh, in Britain, it would be 18%. And you have to pay that in the national currency as well. So these systems are really, really dragged down by their link to the, to the dollar economy. And it means that many organizations, it's just not worthwhile there being a member. Um, if you do $100 of trade and you end up paying, you know, what with everything, $25 of that, uh, 25 real dollars leaves your business, well, then you might not even be able to afford to replenish your stock. Um, so the, uh, the members of these business barter networks tend to come from quite limited sections of the economy. Uh, things like restaurants, uh, rental companies, service industries, where they have all this extra capacity. You know, if you've got an empty seat in a restaurant, uh, it costs you almost nothing to fill it. Um, if you've got an empty seat in a cinema, it's the same. If you've got an empty uh, hotel room, it's the same. But if you're selling books and there's a small margin, like, I don't know, margin on books, 5 to 10%, then it's just not worth being a member of a system like that. Um, so the, the business barter sector only really serves a small part of the economy because of the high throughput of dollars that has to go through it. And this is why I argue that we need to find a way to reinvent business barter. Now, you're never going to get away from the tax requirements, not unless you can somehow negotiate with the government. I mean, there's maybe, you know, it could come in, in the next recession, the government could put out ideas, uh, put a call out for ideas, and we could say, how about not taxing business barter? And they could do it doesn't seem likely. But what we can do is try to work with free open source software. Um, we can try to network the groups together and we can try to cover the costs by using trade credit, not money. And that means that uh, the producers of the software, the managers of the networks, they don't get paid so much in money, they get paid in credit which enables them to buy goods and services in the network. Maybe that would work even better if people were members of the network on a part-time basis. So they, would, they did some activities for money and then they did some activities uh, within the network.
Um, those networks tend to require a lot of energy on behalf of the people running them to drive sales. You have to know what everybody is producing, what everybody's consuming, and make the connections between them. Because sometimes in a business, you have loads of inputs, um, loads of outputs, and you just can't list them all in the directory. Um, you might be a member of a system, but you might forget to look in the directory for whatever you need or to look in the directory for customers. So an, another expense in business barter is the brokering function. Some systems uh, have full-time brokers. Uh, there's one system in Australia I'd like to mention to you. I met the, the guy who run it. Uh, it's called tradeswap.net. And he's doing it in a very innovative way, um, in a kind of, um, uh, I don't really want to call it a pyramid system, but it kind of works that way. If you introduce new members to the network, who introduce new members, you get commission on what they're doing. Uh, and he can afford to do that because he basically uh, financed building the software itself. It's quite lightweight. And he wants to see the movement succeed more than he wants to take money out of it. And he's, he looks like, you know, I've met him. He's a star of business barter. He's got a huge... Uh, shed in his garden full of stuff that's just waiting to be exchanged and he also works between the business barter networks buying and selling the trade credit so creating liquidity between networks uh, that means people can buy and sell um, with uh, members of the different networks in the same city uh, he lives in sorry in uh, in melbourne but i don't know how strong as networks are in your part of the world. Um, mutual credit hasn't been very well regulated um, and it's been quite easy in the past to run fraudulent schemes. Um, so the, the network doesn't have a very good, uh, sorry, the industry, the sector doesn't have a very good reputation. And a lot of people have had experiences of trying business barter and what happens is they supply to the network and supply to the network and they build up some credit, but then there's nothing they want. Or if there is something they want in the network, they go to somebody and they say, can I have this? And they say, well, yeah, but I don't accept barter dollars at one-to-one -one with normal dollars. So you have to spend, you know, two or three times as many barter dollars to get what you want. Well, that's, that's inflation. And inflation happens in mutual credit systems when the, uh, the person running it spends and doesn't earn. So it's a lack of reciprocation. And you can do that in a business barter network. What you do is you just say everybody's accounts are private and everybody says, oh, that's nice. I like privacy. And then your account is also private. So nobody can see that you didn't put a bottom limit on your spending and that you're not reciprocating. So as the leader of the system, you can spend into the system, taking goods and services out for yourself and not reciprocate. And then that means that other people in the system, the members, find it easy to earn, but difficult to spend. Um, so the way I see the industry, it's very much controlled and shaped by the software providers. The software providers will try to have more and more networks running their software 
and they get revenue not only from renting the software to each group, but from the trade between the instances of their software. So they run an exchange. Each, each software provider runs an exchange that allows trade between the systems, and then they take a cut of the, the transaction fees that go between the systems. And that provides additional revenue for them. But it also means they tend to be quite reluctant to open up to other networks and to allow trade between the networks because it's all about owning the silo, owning the data, keeping your users inside a walled garden so they have to trade with your other members and you maximize your commission from them. And you make it difficult as well for them to migrate to other systems. And so this kind of structural aspect um, of the business barter industry, the way the software is provided, has also prevented the business barter sector from scaling. Um, and that's what I would like to address by providing um, open protocols and free software. We'll get onto that in a minute. Any questions about business barter? I just had a comment on that one. I mean, you've really outlined in a, a pretty, uh, pretty graphic and, and practical way the the value that we would have in in recommoning that sort of area, which is what you're talking about. Is that's yeah. all that's all the problems of the enclosed system where it's owned and milked by someone. Yeah, absolutely. These are private systems of exchange. Uh, not governed by their members, uh, little fiefdoms, if you like. And we can just create them if we organize ourselves. Uh, it could be that the regulatory environment is against us in creating them. Um, things tend to be easier if you set up a, a company, sell shares to raise capital or whatever. Um, so there are those kinds of obstacles, uh, but it shouldn't make it impossible. I've got a question, if I may. Walter here. There's an awful lot to think about in the presentation tonight and I need to do some reading and some thinking. One question, though, that here's a very naive question. I think it goes right back to the beginning. If I'm in one of these mutual systems, how do I buy a tin of fish at the supermarket? You have to get the supermarket to join the system. Generally, supermarkets don't join these systems. So then how would I purchase my groceries? Uh, well, if you want that tin of fish, uh, you have to work with money outside the network of exchange. Right. Uh, so. But what you could also do, and what uh, I would encourage in the kind of networks I envisage, is to go and find some fishermen uh, who might be selling fish at a market on the quayside, and say, uh, look, would you mind packaging some of these fish, freezing them, and sending them in a car once a week to our neighbourhood distribution point, and we'll give you some goods and services on our network if you do so. Right. Do you see what I mean? That's really rebuilding the economy. You're taking those fish out of the monetary economy and putting them into your own non-monetary exchange system. That's how you grow 
And that's how you get more goods and services and more potential exchanges happening within your group. And that's how you reduce the need for money. That's where this whole movement needs to go. There you go, Walter. You could go down to the farmers' markets, mate, and talk to the fish guys there. Well, there's a nice fish guy next to the Cook supermarket. He's a cook grocer and uh, gets his from the bay. But uh, it's, just, it's an awful lot. Uh, another naive question. I can just see if, if this grows, I can just see governments declaring it illegal. Uh, is there any, there's nothing to prevent that, is there? Apart from sheer public momentum and support. Um, what prevents it from growing, in my opinion, is the that structural aspect that I talked about, because money and networks of exchange and markets, they're natural monopolies, and all these business barter companies are competing, so none of them can be remotely as efficient as the national money system, which is controlled. Um, so this siloing effect means it's just not very efficient to do exchange in small groups of people. Uh, but also the, the government wouldn't object if they continued to tax it as it was. Um, that, that would be their main objection if they were losing tax. Uh, what, who, the, who would object would be the banks. Uh, if, it got, if it got to enough scale, the banks would start noticing that they were losing um, customers in the trade credit market and, well, they would start doing nefarious things, I'm sure. But I'm not worried about that. Yeah, I reckon that's where a strong community comes in because if you do have a strong community, you can just say, well, we're going to keep going. You're going to look pretty stupid locking up a 1,000 people for using their own sort of little trade credits. Um, well, the bank like strategy that. probably wouldn't be to lock people up. Um, it would, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, uh, they would destroy the thing in the media, mm. uh, destroy the leaders, uh, highlight uh, instances of things gone wrong. Uh, associate it with uh, undesirable political parties. You know, it would be fascists now. Find a link with fascism and then everybody would get scared off. <laughs> so as you build them, um, you need to attract people in on some basis, but then you need to keep them there by building the community and telling them the reason why they're there. And then they would become uh, much more resistant to that kind of propaganda. Well, can I put another point then? Um, we're going to introduce ourselves earlier, never got around to it. One of my major occupations at the moment is volunteering for the Canberra City Farm. Now, we're mm -hmm. uh, trying to promote urban agriculture, which is uh, not a recognised land use in the ACT. We'd like it to become recognised. But if we can produce a uh, sufficient volume of fruits and vegetables, which at the moment is... Uh, it's tiny. That could be a segue somehow into a mutual assistance network in, in some way. I'm just trying to connect some dots here. Yeah, uh, one way to bootstrap these systems is to have a commonly needed product um, that everyone wants to buy. And then the, the, the one growing that product 
can spend into the network because everyone knows that they've got vegetables and everyone needs vegetables. And same works with uh, electricity companies. Um, you can circulate tokens which you can use to pay for your electricity. And that means that the electricity producer can have these prepaid, so they can be paid in advance for the electricity and use that for investment. It's a different twist on the same theme. I guess first find your electricity producer. Yeah. We've got one on the call, haven't we? Yeah. I'm just thinking now of uh, photovoltaic systems and cameras trying to, the uh, whole city become one, one intelligent grid, um, batteries and the like. That's very large scale, though. I think the government has certainly got its direction set. So whether how we would... Uh, insert ourselves into that system i really don't know uh, right, i might have to just butt in here because we're, we're starting to run out of time and matt's got a little bit more of the, the the finale to, to continue with well let's go to the finale yeah all right so um i just want to tell you a bit about the credit commons and then it's free for all so i've talked a lot about um mutual credit systems are barriers to scale, trading between the systems, and governance. And I've talked a bit about decentralization as well. The idea that uh, if you can run your own system, and if everybody can run their own system, then there isn't really a center. And it, it's a way of bringing the political power and autonomy down to the small scale where you feel you can participate and uh, uh, and manage things according to your own collective desires. Um, so the problem with all these decentralized systems is that they're so different that they can't exchange with each other. You know, they're using different software or they've got a different unit of account or they can't see in each other's directories and so on. So what I've done is propose a protocol that would be fairly simple to implement and would enable different groups using different but easily made compatible software to trade with each other. And so that would enable all the different groups to govern themselves while participating in a much larger marketplace. I didn't stress before that if you've got a group of five people they're not going to be able to reciprocate very much amongst them because you've got five goods and services and you, each one can only give as much as they can receive to the others. It's going to constitute a tiny part of your monthly budget, what you do with those other five people. But if you've got a group of 500 people, 500 producers, you're going to be able to exchange much more within that network. And so when we're talking about money and exchange, the size of the network is critical. And yet big networks are subject to um, mismanagement, top-down control, centralization. And so this, the credit commons is a way of building a network from the bottom up. And we use uh, mutual credit to do exchange between groups. 
Now that has the side effect of meaning that you don't have to be a mutual credit group to join. You only have to be a group that's interested in importing and exporting. But then you connect to other groups who are interested in importing and exporting using mutual credit and using this protocol, which works from your community hub platform. Now, I don't know if I'm being very clear. Imagine just as a load of people get together and agree to exchange in a group, a load of groups get together and agree to exchange in a larger group, in a group of groups. And then group of groups find other groups of groups in different parts of the country, and they all get together. And now anybody in the country can exchange with anybody else in the country by uh, accounting between all of these groups. And so each group is self-governing, has its own monetary policy, its own culture, and yet it can trade with groups far away just because they're using a common protocol. So the Credit Commons is that protocol. It enables individuals and groups to issue their own credit, to establish trust relationships between each other, which means we say the balance limits, it goes back to that. How do we keep balance between members of a group and groups within a larger group? It enables them to do politics to ensure that the balance limits are respected and therefore they can exchange. They, each, each group has an account, accounting system that says what the balances are between all the members and therefore what each member needs to give or receive to get back to balance. So you have a system of moneyless exchange, which is absolutely scalable. And because membership is voluntary, it's governed from the bottom up. So the, the organization at the crux, uh, say uh, the, there could be a global organization which manages the balances between all the countries. If it got taken over, then all the countries could just opt out and form their own because uh, membership is voluntary. They might have to pay their debts back and get back to zero or spend and get back to zero in order to leave with a good name. But because you form it from the bottom up, nobody can really tell you what to do from the top down. So I'm, I'm offering this as a model to be the next big thing. We can network together, business barter networks, lets and time banks, both separately and together if they want to. If you want to trade, say, between a business barter network and a time bank, all you have to do is establish an exchange rate and establish how much each network is willing to give each other temporary credit. I'm not saying that would be a good thing or a desirable thing, but it would be a possible thing. And so that would enable um, this very fragmented alternative economy movement to work together by building a much larger marketplace, making much more exchange possible outside of the monetary economy, and therefore maybe to get some momentum going. Because right now we're all too fragmented and we can't really meet each other's needs. Most of us aren't even aware 
of what each other is producing and consuming. And so this offers a sort of framework for that. Um, so without going into too much detail, I've written a protocol. I've built a reference implementation of the software and I'm working with a sizable team of volunteers in UK to, to try and roll this out to different uh, areas of the economy. We've got uh, a team working on small and medium enterprises. I guess that would be to start business barter networks. A team working on government because there's an argument to say that um, government could really benefit local government from offering a liquidity facility, basically a local government run business barter network to its businesses. And that could be tied in with uh, paying business rates or even early payment of the business taxes. Um, and we're also reaching out to accountants because we understand that uh, it's common practice for accountants to make matches between their members. Uh, so say to one member, hey, this other customer of mine could use your stuff. Why don't you sell to them and I'll just do the accounting for you and make it easy. So that happens and we'd like to reach out to them as well. So that's all ongoing. We'll, we'll be gonna start looking for funding soon now that we've got a working prototype. And I invite you to just remember that because hopefully it'll start to become a thing over the coming year. We're trying to leverage the, the COVID recession, which is starting right, right now as an argument to say to people, look, you could think about the economy differently. Is there any way we can read about this? Well, you can read the white paper. Oh, um, yes. But I wrote that four years ago. So it just describes the model. Um, would help you to understand it maybe a bit better than my ad hoc uh, explanation now. And I find there's so many ways of describing the credit commons to different audiences, so many starting points, because everybody has different knowledge about it and different assumptions. Um, sometimes when I describe it uh, speaking, it comes out a bit garbled. So the white paper at least tries to give you some systematic steps mm. and you can study it at your own leisure. And it's, it's easy, it's short, and it's not uh, too technical. Yeah, while you were talking there, Matt, I, um, I sort of realised that uh, Nina is, or the New Economy Network of Australia, is actually a member of uh, an intercontinental network. It's uh, RIPES. Mm -hmm. It's the intercontinental yeah. network for the promotion of the social solidarity economy. Well, and, I've uh, talked to Jason Nardi. Oh, yes. The guy who runs RIPES, and he's, he's not very warm on the subject i think he he thinks that uh it's good but it's not the time at least for ripes to get involved so you know maybe if we develop it more he'll jump on it he'll say right now's the time uh or maybe he'll leave it to his members to decide i don't know hmm. oh, that's a pity or, or maybe it's for members to lobby him and say look we want to do business barter yeah but I'm, I'm at a loss sometimes to see what Repass actually does because it seems um, very abstract to me. 
Yes, well, I guess it's a network of networks of networks, so it wouldn't mm. necessarily be pretty abstract, wouldn't it? <laughs> Could be. Yeah. Any questions? One, one here again. Um, Matt, the British groups you're referring to, have they documented their experiences and their areas of specialty? I, I, I would really value some precedence here and how... Other people got started and how they... Well, uh, they haven't got started yet. Um, you can join a team if one of those teams interests you. Um, they're fairly active. Um, and you could maybe contribute and also learn. But no, they're not really documented very much because it's the small agile groups and they're really just getting started. Like We've just spent the last month thinking about what are our communication needs in each team? Should we build one website or three? Things like that. Uh, meanwhile, everybody's trying to do their own networking and reaching out. And this is all in preparation for uh, hopefully getting some investment capital and then being able to much better finance communication and software. So how would I find out about them? Um, there's lots of telegram groups you can email me I'll put you in touch thank you can't quite uh, do it here yeah yeah anyone who wants to get in touch with uh, Matt you can look at uh, Matt's website mattslats.net that's a, a great little point of contact there you get all sorts of cool stuff out of there sort of any of these things that Matt's been talking about are all linked to off of Matslats.net. Particularly proud of my audio books. Audio books. Great. I'm going to listen to them. Momo, Momo just put up a link in the chat creditcommons.net slash creditcommons.pdf. So that's a good starting place. Great. Great. Uh, so, Matt, one thing that was encountered not far from here, just down the coast um, last year was when the, the massive bushfires that we had here sort of slammed into a whole region and they took out all the power lines so there was no electricity and then some of the, a lot of the, uh, the radio broadcast towers went as well and there was basically no communications for quite some time. Now, this is a, this is a point in your society where you really need this sort of network where people know who does what how how would a let's or a, a time bank deal with that because it's all it all seems to be um based on the on the websites um well when the shit hits the fan hmm. the accounting isn't so important um if the phones are down we can't do anything and that would include these systems if they were entirely digitized if you're particularly worried about your community infrastructure going down, then you build alternative infrastructure. Uh, with these accounting systems, you can also run them on paper, although it's terribly cumbersome. Uh, you could run it on a local web server. You could run a kind of WiMAX network. I don't know what that's called. Or buy your own G5 equipment. Maybe G4 would do. I don't know. Uh, have your own broadcasting tower. You can build Wi-Fi meshes, meshes 
So you can have internet between members of the community, even if your connection to the backbone is lost. Uh, all those are difficult and expensive, uh, but maybe really fun projects to do. Uh, but they might not be priority. There's so much to do in terms of food production. Uh, I think food production is very important for many reasons, um, one of which is health. Um, yes. But also food production is a really strong basis for building community and doing exchange. It invites a bit of specialization. It invites food processing. Uh, it invites cooking and eating together and so on. And so my, my first preference would be to build that kind of community more than building uh, internet infrastructure. And maybe in cities, it would be better to focus on Wi-Fi. Uh, and building meshes and, you know, having your own community server and having private communication between members and so on. You could build your own phone network, but, you know, it's all expensive. It takes equipment, takes investment, and you want to have a lot of users involved to benefit from it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I heard in, in Christchurch, the time bank there yeah. had a great response to the earthquakes. Um, because everything did go down, like I was saying with the fires, but because they already had that community and that network and so many people in the community knew who to go to. Oh, my God, I need a plumber. I'll go mm -hmm. over to Dave's place. And they just went over there. <laughs> they couldn't call. They couldn't send an email, but they knew exactly where to go. So, Well, this, the story wasn't so much that uh, the community was so strong that they didn't need the online directory. Uh, the story I got out of it was that the community coordinator, the time bank coordinator, knew everybody and was recruited by the emergency services to help plan and manage the emergency response. Ah. So because the community was in place and it was strong, that enabled a better response and it enabled the communities to support the government response. But, you know, there are multiple, numerous benefits of building strong communities. All right. Well, we've pretty much reached the end of our time. Um, does anyone have any last questions or is there anything that you'd like to add, Matt, that, uh, that we've uh, missed? Um, it's Anne here. I've, I've got a question. <laughs> um, so I'm, we're from a, I'm from a small community. Like 15,000 people and then we you know if you're looking at the credit commons because we're setting up lets and all of that here at the moment some of our groups who are very like-minded everything they're part of the share economy so they don't do the counting they do the sharing so is there a opportunity within the credit commons to work with groups that do physical sharing but don't count or is that just too far out of the bounds well, to, to participate in the Credit Commons, you don't have to have a local currency. But as a group, you have to be ready to measure your imports and your exports. So um, imagine there's, uh, how many was it in the sharing economy? Hundreds. Um, also, you might want to call it a gift economy because sharing economy. Yeah, to gift, yeah. So well, there's, there's together, both. We've uh, got both, actually. <laughs> yeah, go on. Uh -huh. 
if you all get together in a group and say you want to trade with uh, the lets in the next village, you need to have uh, your your community platform would need to have a payment form because the the goods going from one village to the next have to be measured in a unit of account. So you need to be able to say, well, I'm receiving this, and therefore our community is paying your community this many units. But then whether or not that, those units are credited to that person's account, we don't care in the credit commons. That's internal to you. In fact, it's technically private. Um, nobody can see inside your community. Um, yeah, because so I was yes. thinking um, of trying to, if there was a possibility of creating that here, because our next very next town is two and a half hours drive. There's nothing in between, and there's more that like three towns away where one of my daughters lives is 1100 k's. So um, yeah, so that part of it is out. So I was trying to think of how to do it internally. That was all, but that's okay. I'll keep thinking it through. Well, I think that could work for you, but just bear in mind I haven't built it yet. We're just in the prototype. Oh, what, yes, what, and we're not ready yet anyway, so yeah. Um, what would happen is um, I'm going to publish an API and you would have to make your software compatible with that API, which is a couple of days' work for a programmer. Um, and then you could start negotiating a unit of account and the trade limits with your neighbouring communities. Thank you. That's good, Ta. Um, I just wanted to raise a question because it's not raised enough. Maybe this will be the final issue. Um, and it's a question for all of you because I'm not an expert by any means. But the question of inclusivity, how do we ensure that genders, races, classes, and in Australia, Aboriginals, are part of our efforts how do we draw on their expertise and include them in our process of exchange? Because there's a danger, and we've seen it a lot, particularly in LETS, it tends to be white middle-class people. And so is that being addressed at all inside NENA, and could it be? I just want to put it on the table. Yeah, so we actually have a very strong uh, First Nations group um, there's one of the uh, one of the elders from Brisbane has, has spoken really eloquently at each of our um, at each of our conferences. Uh, Mary Graham, um, Auntie Mary Graham. Um, we've had a, a very strong theme in all of the conferences uh, on Indigenous stuff. Um, Michelle Maloney, one of our, our founders, is uh, is very deep in that side of things. So we're actually doing that end of it quite well. Um, haven't seen very much action on the LGBTQ type of stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, generally you go to the conference, it is mostly fairly middle class and white and university educated, <laughs> except for me. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so in, in certain ways we've done fantastically well there, um, in other ways, not I'd like to ask other people here, perhaps especially the women, um, do you feel that uh, you have opportunities to contribute to the movement? 
or sometimes also to receive. Sometimes it's a question of, you know, women are giving too much and not receiving enough. And I'm pretty new to Nina. I mean, in Let's, it seems to be, seemed to be, when I was in Queensland, it was mostly women anyway. Um, I seem to find more women in the community space, like in mutual aid and yeah. um, community garden. Um, it's, men are in the minority. What I've noticed is that the women are doing all the best work, all the concrete stuff, including a lot of the organisation. I'll try again. I don't know that women tend to do all the real work, including the organising, um, in these kind of lets and local community groups, uh, also in time banking. And the men tend to take on um, the theorising work. And it always ends up with men doing the speaking. And it doesn't seem very fair because the women have the practical knowledge. And a lot of what the men are saying is abstract and of limited value. And so I've noticed that uh, the women are saying much more useful things when they get a chance to speak because they have the experience. And now I'll stop interrupting you. Yeah, look, I reckon that was a, a pretty good note to end on. Um, anything else anybody would like to add before we wind up? Yeah, I'd just like to thank you for this whole seminar. Very thought-provoking. And, Matt, I think our silence is that of reflection and thinking. It's not of <laughs> passive uninterest. <laughs> well, it's been my absolute pleasure. Yeah, well, I'd like to thank Matt, especially he's done a very much a marathon effort here. I wasn't able to snag any other guests to share the uh, the duties with you, Matt. But uh, thank you very much for the uh, going above and beyond for and staying with us for so long. On the contrary, I've been bathing in your attention. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's been hard. To, I've been trying to research other white systems and stuff, so it's been... It's been hard to find information, so it's great. Thank you. Um, do uh, write me an email and I can conduct a correspondence, probably quite useful and quite brief. All right, that'd be awesome. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for coming. And once again, thank you very much to Matthew Slater for your uh, excellent information and presentation. Thanks again. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra for the New Economy Network of Australia and Behind the Lines on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years and we do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. And to help out or join Co-Canberra, contact us at info at canberracooperatives.org.au.
www.ruralpodcast.com.au. Thanks.